Vera Farmiga, and this is Film Wax Radio. Hey, everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, June 19th, 2020, and this is episode number 619 of Film Wax Radio podcast. Uh, coming your way from New York, uh, from Queens, New York. My last days here of about one more week in this town, uh, not far from where I grew up. This was where my dad and was living towards the end of his life. I am in the final steps of clearing out his place, and uh, it's been quite an emotional ride on top of coronavirus, on top of Black Lives Matter, on top of everything else in the world. I've also lost my father recently, and I'm relocating for a period of time, at least, upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, and uh, I plan to be there for a little while. We'll see how it goes, playing it by ear. In fact, as I record this, uh, I was there earlier today, settling in a little bit, came back down, got more things to do down here, got a lot of work before next week. If you're hearing this and you want to help me, thank you. But you can't, I guess, right? So anyway, I hope you're well. I am finally deciding to get this episode up and out because a friend of mine, Ivy Mirapol, is back on the podcast. Ivy, let's see, episode number 360 in July of 2016, almost three months to the day, shy of a couple of weeks, with her last documentary. It was called Indian Point about the nuclear plant in the Hudson Valley, and uh we have Ivy back on to discuss a new documentary that's going to be premiering on HBO today. It's on HBO. If you have an HBO account, HBO Go, Now, Max, whatever it is, HBO Cable, you are set to go to watch Bully Coward Victim, this Roy Cohen, sto- the story of Roy Cohen. And then we will be back after that segment with another friend, uh, of the podcast, Marco Williams, finally uh, making his first appearance on the show, and uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Bully Coward Victim, the story of Roy Cohn, will now debut. Uh, it uh, debuted last night, actually, but it is, uh, they, they ended up t- uh, moving it up a day because they didn't want to conflict with Juneteenth, which is today. Uh, the film takes an unflinching look at the life and death of infamous attorney Roy Cohn, who first gained prominence by prosecuting Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and what, and what came to be known as the Atomic Spies case. The documentary draws on extensive newly unearthed archival material to present the most revealing examination of Roy Cohn to date. Director Ivy, Ivy Mirpole, Indian Point, HBO's heir to an execution, brings a unique perspective as the granddaughter of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, having spent much of her life feeling both rep- 
compelled and fascinated by the man who prosecuted her grandparents, obtained their convictions in federal court, and then insisted on their executions. As a personal side note, uh, I am friendly with the family. Uh, 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 Ivy's dad is Michael Mirapol, one of the two boys of the Rosenbergs that were uh, left, not orphaned, I suppose, but uh, their parents were executed. They were adopted by the Mirapol family, who ended up sending them to a summer camp in the Hudson Valley, which I later attended at a different time. But we have that connection, and uh, I met Michael some time ago around the time of Indian Point, and reconnect right on this podcast you're about to hear. You can watch the documentary, which I insist you do. It's, again, it's called Bully Coward Victim, the story of Raccoon. It's on right now on HBO. Don't hesitate. Watch this documentary. I saw it. It is extremely entertaining and fascinating and upsetting. This is my second podcast conversation with Ivy Mirapol. Right now, here on Film Wax Radio, we have a special guest with Michael, her dad, on the podcast as well. Thank you. And here we go with that conversation. Then we'll be back with Marco Williams right afterwards. Roy Cohen was the reason my parents were convicted and executed. The last place I saw your grandparents was Sing Sing. Going to Sing Sing is a way of connecting to that 10-year-old. I read The Judgment of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and there was a reference to Roy Cohn, and I'd already heard about him because of McCarthy. To call Roy Cohn evil, it's true, but it doesn't explain a hundred other things about him. Every era has an opportunist, somebody who will stretch the law and ethics to make the ends justify the means. Roy knew how to get permits taken care of, unions to do your bidding, the mafia to leave you alone. He would do whatever he needed to to win. I found out one thing in life. Don't ever threaten unless you intend to follow through. That is how to wield power. Donald Trump, he said, you stand up to the establishment. Can I come see it? The whole point was to resist. Never admit that you're wrong. Trump fell in love with that. On talk shows, he's nerdy and creepy, but very sort of lawyerly, polite. He came from a certain generation where you obviously couldn't be openly gay. Many people were shocked that Roy Cohn appeared in Provincetown, which is probably the world's leading summertime gay community. The only place I ever saw him was in Front Street. People that owned it, he said, well, I just always spit in his food every time I serve it. I would have done more than spit. He wanted to make himself this indispensable power broker, sort of like the original fixer. What do you say to people who say you ruin people's lives? I say name one. Hey, Ivy. Hi, how are you? Do you want me to do to have video on? Yeah, well, I'm not going to use it, but I'm just... <laughs> there she is. Good to see you. Hi, nice to see you too. How are you? How you been? I'm okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a loaded question. Exactly, right? exactly. It's, uh, it's a little rough. I have, you know, 15-year-old and 11-year-old, and I'm most worried about them. Right. Yeah, I have a 16-year-old. Yeah. Who, uh, he's in Los Angeles with his mother now, but he was here until about, um, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which I kind of preferred, but right now I'm actually getting ready to move. So, (laughs) 
I, I don't know. You have a lot going on. <laughs> I have a lot going on also. It's just best, oh, I see. <laughs> it's best that he's not here for that, you know? I'm actually at my dad's house right now because um, he Where? has, he, well, I'm in Cold Spring. He, he lives in Cold Spring near me, oh, um, right around the corner. Oh, okay. Uh, in the Hudson Valley and uh, but he it's much quieter here and he has central air conditioning <laughs> yeah. unlike me so, magic, magic yeah. words I'm moving to the Hudson Valley so oh where where to uh, well I'm moving to um, uh, to Tivoli oh lovely yeah um, but I was uh, looking I was hoping Socrates uh, but I'm perfectly happy in this place and uh, I, you know, I'm very familiar with it. You know, I, I was mentioning to Miranda that, uh, you know, I don't know if you recall our personal connection or mine with your dad and, and your uncle, but oh, you know, they attended- what a, what, Say again? They attended a summer camp in the Hudson Valley when they were kids. Yes. The Mirapol sent them there in Walk Hill, New York, called Camp Thoreau. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's where I grew up going to Camp Thoreau, but I started probably your parent, your your family was going there. I'm going to guess right at this when the camp started in 1962. I'm guessing they were probably one of the first families. To yes. Yeah. Yeah. By the time I was eight years old, it was like ten years later. So. Right. Right. That's actually I don't know if I ever told you this. But that's actually where my parents met. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my father was the music counselor. My mother was the tennis counselor. <laughs> was a tennis counselor? My mom I, was. She barely court. could play. She could barely play, but she was a tennis counselor. Is there a tennis court? Oh. I don't even remember a tennis court. Oh, my dad's over here telling me, he just said, it's well, the funny part was there was no tennis court, but she was the tennis counselor. <laughs> wait, wait, I never wait, knew. Wait, have your, ask your dad just to say quick hi. Yeah. Dad, wants to say quick hi. Adam, yeah, he's right here. How do you do, Adam? Adam. It's so nice <laughs> to see you. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was an original counselor, nineteen sixty two, sixty three, sixty four. Wow. Yeah, you know we're we have a little bit of a weekly. I, I can I can contact you apart from this to let you know. But every week now we have a weekly on Sunday afternoons uh, Camp Thoreau Zoom thing. Wow. And there are people that are popping on from the first generation. Uh -huh. Oh, you'd love that. Who, who was your director? Oh, it was. Uh, Carl, uh, and then Carl Rodman, and then Greg Finger. I don't know if you knew Greg. He might have come out. I know who he is. You what? I know who Greg is. Oh, okay. Well, you know he died, and he died about 10 years ago. Yeah, I know. I knew Carl, of course. He yeah. hired me. Carl and Ann? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so I was there from 1972. I started as a camper, though, in 1972, mm. and then was there until 1977. Because mm -hmm. one of my favorite campers took over from Greg, Paul Milkman. Oh, is that right? I see now. I met, I've met him a couple of times over the years, Paul. And um, but we had a, a a little bit of like a music night in Park Slope. Yeah, four or five yeah. years ago. That's how I've reconnected with him. He's a neighbor of a very good friend who lives in Park Slope. Oh, we started corresponding for the first time in over thirty years. Can, I'd love to uh, get his email at least. I'd like uh, to. Uh, you can. I will give you my email, and I'll send okay. you his. All right. But, thank you. Okay. Really nice to see you. Thank star you. of star of star of my, Ivy Mirapol's uh, film. Yes, that's right. Bully coward. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but he's not the bully coward. He's the opposite. He's that's the, right. He's the opposite. That's <laughs> I know. He's the beautiful um, guy. Beautiful I will. Guy. 
I will send you um, an email with my dad's info and you guys can connect on that. Did, did uh, your dad, did you bring it us up to that you were going to make a documentary about Roy Cohen? How did you approach that conversation? It sounds to me potentially, it's certainly complicated, but it sounds potentially painful to, to dredge all that up. And this is the guy that in part at least, I'd say in great part, is responsible for your grandparents being murdered by the government. Yeah, I think, um, well, as you know, you know, I had, we, I had already made heir to an execution, which was kind of, you know, the first, uh, you know. I haven't seen it, but I got it. Oh, you have to see it. I, I, <laughs> That's okay. But I know um, that it says it in parentheses after I be here for heir to an execution. Right, right. Um, well, she, it's the, and it's streaming on HBO. So if oh. you, if you get a chance, you can I see it that way. Right. I have no excuse then. I apologize. <laughs> But, you know, I guess, um, you know, making Air to an Execution, we kind of, we already ripped off that Band-Aid, right? Okay. I mean, in terms of me asking my dad how he would feel about me delving into our family history. And I will say, back then, he was unsure. Um, he, in part, because he just didn't want my life to become, you know, so focused on that. You know, he had to, my uncle had to kind of live with that um, so directly. And... And I think that um, he maybe hoped that that I was that it wouldn't it wouldn't have to be a big, as much a big part of my life. But of course, you know, this is our legacy, and I can't couldn't ignore it. And it kept kind of pressing on me the story, so I I, it, I felt compelled to, to make Erdogan execution. Now all these years later, I did not relish going back into um, my family history. And so even though I was, I was really intrigued by Roy Cohn throughout my you know, young adult years, and I kept thinking, why doesn't somebody make a film about Roy Cohn? It's like, it's a, you know, he's just a fascinating figure. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't really want to for, for that very reason. Well, and, you went from pulling the Band-Aid off the first time to now pulling off a scab. Yes, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then, and so, you know, and I kind of, I, I'd moved on, you know, I have a lot of stories that I, I want to tell and I don't, you know, particularly, you know, want to be pigeonholed as someone who continues to tell their family story and all that, all that business that comes with, you know, deciding what to do. And so I, um, but that said, nobody did step up and, and make a, a feature film about Roy Cohn and then Donald Trump was elected. And I have to say, after Trump was elected, I had that similar feeling of feeling compelled that I had to do this story now. I had to use, I had, I had to, you know, use my family story to help audiences understand how we got here. Mm -hmm. And and so, but I found a way, I think, to expand on what we did in Erdogan Execution. I kind of, you know, I'm I'm able to, you know, of course, I had to do a quick primer about you know what happened in the case and who we are and you know what happened to my grandparents and but then everything else that we do it really picks up um where my father and my uncle was trying to reopen the case and how cone starts to trail them in the press and is the one who is telling you know is is the voice of the government defending the executions yeah that's the unfortunate part of his position the infamy is yeah. having also just the sort of the, the, the advantage on, with the spotlight. And so you kind of get more of an advantage on the narrative, the narrative, you know? 
Well, it's, yeah, and it's, it's also um, a way for an audience to really connect with something that happened so long ago and that seems so um, unreal, right? I mean, so this is, you know, that's why we have Cone at the end of the film, you know, in, a, in the audio saying, you know, Lois Romano says, what do you say to people who say you've ruined people's lives? And he's like, name one. I mean, and this is, you know, on his, uh, he's at death's door and he's still saying that. And what we're doing in the film is showing, hey, well, here's a very specific example of a, of a family that was, you know, absolutely impacted by him uh, and his actions and, and that he went on to do more damage to other people. But, but it's a way, you know, it's important. I mean, you, you know, making a film, you want people to connect emotionally to a story and, and that's what we're able to do. We're talking about um, the new documentary, uh, uh, Holy Coward. Victim. Victim. What I call it. Uh, it's it's funny be because that's the that's the word that others stumble on too because it's uncomfortable to call him a victim. Right. And, and who better who 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 exemplifies that mind frame of considering themselves a victim more than Trump? Hmm. Anyway, your your documentary is going to be premiering on the nineteenth of June on HBO. Right. Actually, I. I uh, I'm pretty sure they've moved it to June 18th. Oh, I don't know if Miranda told you that. Um, okay. Well, I will uh, certainly in my the language when I post this and everything else, I'll I'll have the right date. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they they just told us yesterday that because uh, Juneteenth, um, you know that how Trump has decided to give a speech in Tulsa on Juneteenth, which is so uh, um, just an outrageous. <laughs> disgusting <laughs> display um we just you know a lot of media companies are deciding you know they want to have programming to address that so we yeah. didn't want to get lost in that and 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 also you know june 19th is also the anniversary of my grandparents execution oh. yeah so that we you know it's a it's quite a, a loaded day it and loaded uh, day. so we just I, I think the decision has been made that we're going to show it premiere on the 18th and it'll be streaming by the 19th okay very good well, that's perfect then. Uh, and then um, I just wanted to, the decision to go to Ossining, that trip, uh, how did that uh, sort of come about? I mean, it's not too far well, from you. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, when I moved to the Hudson Valley and started taking the train and out of the city and you go right by Sing Sing, um, it's pretty, it's jarring and, um, this and can be pretty upsetting sometimes. And my father too had that realization when he moved to the Hudson Valley, when my parents moved, same thing. Mm -hmm. Going right by, by there started to make him think more about the fact that he'd never been back there since his parents um, had been killed. So uh, what happened was, uh, you know, my dad, a couple of years before I started making the Cone film, uh, had started saying, you know, I'm getting older and I think maybe, you know, maybe I do want to visit Sing Sing once before I die. And I was kind of shocked by that because I didn't think he'd ever want to do that. And I mean, when we were making Airden Execution, there were certain producers who really wanted to see Michael Mirapol go back to Sing Sing and have that. And I never was in favor of that kind of uh, staging, that kind of scene. I'm just, that's not, that's not me. And I, and and I wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. But this time was different. This was my father saying he wanted to go. But what we decided to do, and then when it dovetailed with, you know, he, ha he, didn't, he didn't go before I started shooting. And then I thought, well, how can we really bring 
um, something to the cone film that we haven't seen before and that will really resonate with people visually. Um, but while still protecting my father's um, privacy to have those, that experience inside without cameras. So we landed on what you see in the film, which is, you know, we are outside um, uh, and standing on the river, you know, at the river and you see the towers and we walked around and, and talked about what it meant to be there. And then cameras off, we went inside. Uh, and that was, you know, really intense experience. I mean, he got to sit at the table where he last saw his parents um, in the, uh, the visiting room. And um, it was, it was, it was really, um, uh, bless you. So we, uh, anyway, I, uh, and we did, there was a still photographer that Sing Sing had um, asked to bring along. So there are still some still photos from in there. And we, we grappled with possibly using some of those in the film, but we decided in the end, I, th I think it works well the way we, right. we did it. Oh, very good. Has the US government ever, any, any, pre I guess, any president, any administration, anyone ever made any kind of, um, gesture, short of an apology, I mean, or a recognition that your mother, for instance, uh, grandmother, excuse me, your grandmother, was yeah. not a spy, not a, um, I mean, anything. No, the government has not, has not done that. And in fact, you know, my father and my uncle made a really big effort um, just before uh, President Obama um, uh, ended his term of office they launched a campaign to try to, what's the exact language? Exonerated. Oh, to try to have her exonerated. And, um, and it was, I mean, it was such a disappointing uh, experience because they didn't even get a response from the Obama administration. And they felt like this could be our last chance. We don't, you know, with a, you know, you know we thought uh, sympathetic. Right. White House. Um, nope, not even a response, even with tens of thousands of signatures. Just you know, uh, really. And uh, it was just focused on Ethel. I was, you know, but. No, I understand that. Yeah. You know, uh, but this seems like a journey that's still, it makes me feel like, you know, your family's still on, on a journey. It's, it's, there's no closure to it until I think that has to happen. I think it does. I, yeah, I wonder, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, that's a good question because, you know, I don't know if, if my dad and my uncle want to continue to try to get that kind of um, answer or gratification. I mean, I, I think they, I think that's, they've given up hope for that, mm -hmm. which is, which is sad. Um, and I think what we, what we focus on now is doing things like this, you know, like putting, you know, uh, using the family story to enlighten and educate audiences about what happened and help understand why where how we got here. I mean, I've been saying, you know, I think um, we wouldn't be talking about the Rosenbergs so much right now or Roy Cohn if it wasn't for Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, it's like we almost like we have to keep talking about it because it's so relevant today. Was the uh, you you have. Um um, a number of, uh, I avoid using the term talking heads. This is reductive. And <laughs> I know. I used it as sort of, you know, just inside language, shortcut language. I've been slapped on the wrist, but <laughs> it's, I don't use that term very much. But uh, you have a number of folks in the film that are, uh, you know, have a connection to the Roycland story. Uh, and um, 
the one one such person is uh, Alan Dershowitz, quite a controversial figure. Yeah. As as more controversial over the last three plus years. Uh, what went into that, and how 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 when did you stop? When was that like last conversation with him? I mean, uh, how far back are we talking? Well, I mean, you know, that we interviewed, I interviewed him well before the impeachment debacle, you know, where he really yeah. embarrassed himself on the House floor. Um, uh, he, uh, so, but I already, you know, I can already. You embarrass yourself anymore? I don't even know. What? Can you even, can, 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 can it, it seems like there's no more embarrassment anymore. That's true. That's you, true. You perform, you know, be, uh, behave any way you want it now. Right. No apology, no sort of, yeah. Anyway. No, I know. Well, it was, you know, it was important to me to have Alan <laughs> um, Dershowitz in that role in the film because you know, there's any number of, you know, lefty attorneys, you know, who will, who will say, you know, they were innocent of the crime they were accused of and that Ethel certainly was completely innocent and, and um, what an injustice this was and that Cohn behaved abominably and broke the law. But to hear it from Alan Dershowitz gives it gives it a, a whole nother kind of weight i i felt um you know i couldn't it can't be dismissed as like oh it's all it's all like the friends of the rosenbergs talking right because alan dersh was certainly not a friend of ours um so it, it that was meaningful and i was grateful to him for giving me so much time and giving such a strong interview um i you know, I still, I don't know what he thinks of the film. I've tried to, you know, ask him, I've emailed him a couple of times. He just ignores me now. Um, yeah, it I just- Speaks for itself, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe he, you know, maybe he didn't, maybe he wasn't a fan of it. He was, he, you know, he, he got angry at me. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to hear this kind of thing, but- Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> behind, the, behind the scenes gossip. Um, I did a piece, uh, New York Magazine interviewed me Carl Swanson did a like a Q&A with me when we were at the New York Film Festival. This is where where this film premiered. And I said something along the lines I was just saying, you know, that it was important to have have Dershowitz do this and I said, you know, and I said as a I, I said I called him a right winger in this Q&A. Mm -hmm. As soon as that that story hit the stands or the internet or whatever, I get a call from Alan um, really? Ivy, Alan Dershowitz here, and he is mad. He is pissed at me, and he says, "He says I saw you called me a right winger. I demand that you take that down. You know, you retract that. You know." And he starts listing all his bona fides. I, you know, I, I supported Hillary Clinton. I believe in women's rights and gay rights, and you know, rights of black people and blah blah blah. blah and universal health care. And he's like going on and on about all. This. Like I'm like I don't need your, you know, resume. But but his. His point was that it was reductive of me to say, to call him a right winger. And I like? understand that. I mean, I was trying, you know, I, but I said to him, I said, I'm sorry, Alan, but your very public support of Donald Trump led me to, to believe that you're a right winger. <laughs> so, you know, it was. <laughs> yeah, that didn't talk about the ledge, I don't think. No, no, definitely not. No, no. He didn't, like you said, he does, it's unapologetic. You know, but he then there's no follow-up right it's just a bomb well we i did tell the new york i did tell new york magazine you know they put something online that just you know had like a you know a mild response you know where where i said well, just what i told you i said you know i i referred to 
Alan Dershowitz as a right winger because because of his support for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's another sort of like a, a part of the, this, uh, I don't know, pathology, which is you can even just say, now this is the world we live in where you can say something, one thing, on television, but then, uh, you know, the next day you can deny having said it. Right, right. And, and that sounds a lot like Roy Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There's a lineage here. There's a direct lineage. So Alan uh, Dershowitz, uh, and then who else? Tony Kushner? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I... The spectrum. It was an, an incredible... I have such a... I'm so proud of the the group of subjects that we and I like to call them characters because in my, say, yeah. the way that I approach things and I try not to do the, the so-called talking head interview I mean you know of course That's, in a film like this you really there's not a lot you can do you have to get those interviews you need the information yes, right and I and I again I use that expression I think the public to the public it sounds like a reductive to the to an average person listening to an interview like this hearing that they're talking heads in there will make you think of a certain type of documentary. Whereas yeah. for me, I just use it because it's like, to me, it just connotes a, uh, an expert yes. uh, that you're interviewing. So it, it's me, I don't put a judgment around that term. Of uh, course. And I, but I think, but, you know, right. I, but I won't use it. <laughs> no, no, it's, a, I mean, it's fine. I mean, but I like I subject think, and character too. I think you've touched on what one thing that we really made took great pains to accomplish here with this film is that I didn't want any experts. So what I wanted was people who actually knew Cone and had some great stories that really would bring him to life and make you feel like you were, you know, you understood a, a relationship he had with someone or these like really amazing and, and never before heard anecdotes that just, bring him to life like so for instance like John Laboutier the con the former congressman from New York the Republican congressman from New York he has that incredible story about how you know being um you know asked by Cohn as soon as he's elected as a young congressman to do a favor to help Marion Trump Donald Trump's sister get on the bench right so he does this favor for Cohn right away and then he's part of Cohn's circle and then he has the story of you know uh, that he needed help and and i mean i won't reveal the whole thing but it's just a remarkable he says like this was the most incredible um um display of power that i've ever seen in my life so for me those those were the interviews i was looking for so it's like and 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 colorful characters in and of themselves so you have john waters you have tony kushner you have um cindy adams you have like they're they're just fun to watch and listen to and and, and they speak for most of us like yeah. they're, they're, they're articulate super articulate john water is in 20 you know so they can actually say what's on my mind you know like for right me, I feel right good. and i mean tony kushner and nathan lane are pretty much the oh, only the, they're the only two in the film who didn't know who didn't have inter direct interactions with cone that's including my father um so you know that's we're, I'm really proud of that, and that's what I look for um, in, in trying to, especially making a, a historical documentary. We're getting a message that we're down to the wire here, so oh, which yeah. is fine. We'll repeat that uh, bully coward victim. Do I get that? Do I get an uh, bully coward? Bully, coward. coward? bully coward victim. The story of Roy Cohn. Story of Roy Cohn. Bully coward victim. The story of Roy Cohn. 
you, you know, typically I'm so like, I have my notes, I typically so on top of things, but I was so excited to talk to you. I just like, you know, jumped into things because I figure, wait a minute, I have a connection with you. We spoke around your last documentary, Indian, yeah. Point, Indian Point. Is that also in the Hudson Valley? Is that, uh, <clears throat> is that still available for people to see too? If they, uh, when they, when they see the Indian Point. This, uh, I wish I could say it was. I mean, we don't have a streaming deal. Anybody out there okay. want, <laughs> well, want the point? But I mean, you can get yeah. it on iTunes or you can buy oh. it DVD. Well, also, you know, once you have the enormous success with the Roy Cohn documentary, they'll want all your anything available to uh, stream for them. <laughs> I hope you're right, Adam. I hope you're right. Talking it out there, any point is also an incredible story. Uh, well, I want to thank you and. Uh, I'm so glad we were able to do this um, again. And, uh, and, and maybe if you if you can, I don't know. Do you have my email? I don't know. Maybe put or before we get disconnected here, maybe put your email. I may have it. I think I have your email, and I can always get it from Judith from Synetic or Synetic. They have it just because then you can. I can also invite you guys into that Thoreau thing, or just. Yeah, I think my dad would like that. Yeah, and and people knowing that he's going to potentially come at some point would definitely get some of the other folks to come on. Right, right. They're you know from the '60s year, you know. So yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with the premiere and um, everything else, and it's great. Thank you, Adam, and good luck with your move. And um, thank you. See you sometime. (laughs) I hope so. I know. All right. Okay, Ivy. All right. Take care. You too. first became aware of Marco Williams some time ago when I saw this his documentary The Two Towns of Jasper which basically centered on James Byrd Jr who was a black man in the town of Jasper Texas who was brutally killed by some racist white men back in 19 uh, I think it was 1998 rather than Marco just shoot this alone he code directed this documentary and co- with Filmax radio friend Whitney Dow. And the film is incredible because there's two towns. There's the black town and there's the white town. It's The, the film looks through the prism of uh, one town with two different very perspectives. Meanwhile, there's two teams shooting the film. There's a black team and a white team shooting this documentary. It's brilliant. That, so that put him... And, and since then, I've wanted Marco on my podcast. Uh, well, let me, I don't mean since the, the documentary came out in 2003. So, I mean, it was like 10 years later. I've been trying to, uh, where I was been doing the podcast, but I was trying to get him on since, uh, yeah, about six or seven years ago, I've been wanting to bring him on. And finally, our paths crossed uh, where I was in contact with him about what was going on with the film school that he teaches at Northwestern University. And I asked him at that time, would you do my podcast? And he he consented, and I appreciate it. We have a, quite a great conversation, which you're going to hear right now. Uh, this is my conversation with the filmmaker and the teacher, film teacher Marco Williams, here on Film Wax Radio.
I'm sorry about that. Part of my being late to the party. That's okay. I mean, like I said, I was about to, you know, go to other things. So yeah, no, I don't. Wouldn't blame you for doing that. I, you know, what happens is uh, doing this project on the film schools is, you know, I was had everything set up to start exactly at two o'clock, and then, then all of a sudden I get a call from one of the faculty members at, a, at one of the film schools, and I just get thrown. You know, all of a sudden you fall into a conversation, and it, I just, I, I don't know how to. It's my, it's my, it's a. A little fault in my uh, otherwise near perfect personality. <laughs> Standing well, here, here's to near perfection. <laughs> yeah, right. This is striving, the continuing process of, of striving for perfection. Uh, I got a long ways to go, uh, but uh, thank you for for hanging in there. You're very welcome. Yeah, how are you? I'm uh, I'm pretty well. I mean, you know, given the the over. Yeah. Overwhelming uh, world we live in. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it's a loaded question, and it's meant to be in a way. You know, what I mean, it's like I actually, I'm curious how you're doing and what you're doing. Are you in um, Evanston, Chicago area, or are you in New York? I'm in Chicago. Okay. I live in a, a neighborhood that's on the northern side of Chicago, close to Evanston. But I, uh, yeah, so I'm not in New York. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, I am doing self-care, uh, I have to say, uh, little by little figuring out what I want to say to whom, and some of that has been looking for space within my teaching community to kind of challenge and confront issues that exist within that community as opposed to uh, having a need to be out in the streets uh, per se, and I'm also trying to uh, Think about the work that I do as a way to, you know, amplify these themes that have been in, in my film work forever. So right. that's kind of how yeah. I'm doing. So you're 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 making references, let not directly to uh, well, in so many words regarding obviously what's happened since the murder of George Floyd, and how now that racism is, is blatantly on the table as a conversation for everybody. Nobody's skirting that issue anymore. Well, I don't know how you can, within the also greater context of how you're figuring out being a faculty member at Northwestern come the fall. Well, yeah, so, you know, I mean, pandemic has a racial component. Yes, it's uh, true. George Floyd certainly uh, became a tipping point um, and certainly there's a lot of response to that. And I have um, my own feelings about these uh, issues of race, racial inequality, structural racism, anti-blackness. Uh, you can't be a black person in America and not have a lived experience and probably some articulated thoughts. So I've been thinking about that. In fact, this morning, uh, a former student of mine uh, in Doha, works for a organization called the Cutter Foundation, which is the parent company of Education City, which is where all the Western universities exist. Oh, okay. I didn't know there was like a village for that, but that's... Yeah, called okay. Education City. And they're doing a, a series, he's doing a series of videos for, short videos for Instagram on racism in America, and he interviewed me for about an hour, and I just 
finish finding a clip from a fiction film that I did a long time ago, a short fiction film that has a very uh, explicit uh, sequence of uh, police brutality. So I sent him that to give him something to cut my very extended interview down to two minutes. <laughs> so. so you were on the phone for an hour? Yeah. And he's he, going he, to extract two minutes on this subject of race and yeah. brutality and in America. And, <laughs> okay. and not even just with me, but I think there's somebody else he spoke to as well. So glad, better him than me to have to figure out how to edit it. But at any rate, I, I sent him some stuff. So yeah, all this is on my mind. And it's on my mind in the context of where I teach as well. Does it feel, um, is there a, some sense of um, catharsis within also because there is an enormous, there's been an enormous turnout. Everybody is feeling at the, like, you know, at the, at their skin, on their, well, not to use a, a pun, but like people are, it's like, you know, their nerves are alive with this right now. Under my window on Sunday, I heard all of a sudden some, some noise downstairs and I look out and there is a march going by my window here in where I'm in Queens right now. And they had a rally two blocks away in a park. And I mean, it was, it was really well organized, but also just the diversity I was seeing, you know, was, it was, it was uh, reassuring on some level. Um, well, uh, it's not really cathartic to me, at least not yet. Uh, the catharsis might arrive when there is some evidence of change of some sort. So that, that you know, I, am I, I'm sort of impacted by the sheer volume and sustained aspect of the protests. But if you've been protesting all your life to some extent in this way, um, I'll be frank and blunt with you, I, I don't need a diversity of citizens to validate my reality. Now, if the diversity of citizens who are participating help contribute to some explicit change, then that's great. Uh, so yeah, for me, it's not so much about who's at the marches. Uh, I mean, look, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure we've been thinking about why now, you know, the conflation maybe of three things in one week, but who knows what's a tipping point, right? There's so many videos and shit. I was just looking at the Washington Post today and they, they put up two clips, one from Austin and one from New Jersey of basically police killing black men. So, I mean, what, you know, what's interesting now is that there are many videos and people are now perhaps taking it more seriously than they did before. And, and when I say people, I'm gonna say white people because black people have been taking it seriously because we, we've been on the other side. Yeah, the other side of the knee, as it were. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I don't know how there's any solution as far as police brutality specifically, other than dissolution of the police department as we know it. I just don't, it's just such a, as I think you mentioned before, it's, it was constructed for the purposes of how it's being utilized. And so it's, it's working very successfully, or it has. So how do you take that and then try to change it so drastically? Or do you just sort of 
dissolve it and start over, like they, they've done in a couple of cases, I believe. I mean, that's, it's a certainly, you know, a radical solution to envision that if you dissolve, pick a city or a town and you dissolve the police force and you could then recruit a new class of police people and they would have a particular attitudes or whoever's in charge would institute a certain kind of mindset. That, that's an interesting idea. For me, it seems somewhat fanciful. Um, I don't know how do you kind of completely uh, purge, you know, yeah. decades if not centuries of a particular mindset for how the police should operate, particularly in communities of well, color. If you fire, like, what, what city was it uh, that did this? Um, it was a city that had obviously one of the one of the one of the uh, cases of uh, police murders in a. I'm trying to remember which city now, but I just was yeah. reading about it. Or what? I don't remember. Okay. Well, uh, the point being is they they fired the entire police force and they made the officers reapply. Um, and in doing that, uh, hope I believe the idea is that we're also at that point able to, uh, when they're back at ground zero, they're able to uh, now include perhaps other organizations uh, to the table you know, when you're restructuring the police department and you are now have citizen groups as part of, in the, at the, at the origin of this new model, I guess, uh, you know, that seems to me that that could work. I mean, uh, to continue it the way it is, certainly is a, it's not going to change. I, I mean, I, I don't see That's great. I, I hadn't read the details of that. That's an interesting, you know, uh, yeah. enterprise. And yeah, yeah. I, I, but I think, you know, to that point, you know, something, radical needs to occur. Although we could also consider, not that I am a person to advocate or even explicitly appreciate incremental change. Uh, some of the videos that we're seeing are the result coming from body cameras or dash cams. So that's a five year, maybe seven year um, you know, implementation in most police departments. So that's yielding some kinds of results. Uh, although it, I mean, you can live stream those. <laughs> those videos are, have been out there and, and, and people have not been um, right. uh, arrested. Po people, policemen have not been arrested. Uh, yeah, so I do think something radical has to happen because well, some of the radical is is the people themselves, not the police. The people themselves are demanding change. And I think it's certainly has begun with not simply demanding, but the witnessing, right? The the cell phone camera. You know, I mean I, I mean I could go on. It's just thinking about I know George Floyd and how uh, an individual could be so nonchalant and do what he did for close to nine, nine minutes yeah. and three other police officers doing nothing despite a group of citizens around saying, You're killing them. Breathe, you're killing right. them, etc. Right. Well, um, they weren't just doing nothing. They weren't standing by doing nothing. If they were no. standing by looking down, yes, but they literally were contributing to the block of his um, airflow and blood flow. So, you know, they, so they That's should. Right. 
go to jail. You know, they should. That's right. That's a, you really. That's a better. They were complicit, yeah. and therefore they were doing something. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess you could say they were argue that they would have been complicit just standing there too. You know, uh, and I think what's what what I think what a lot of people are are finally the one message that I think some white people are maybe beginning to understand. It just takes a long time to people shock people awake a little bit, you know. But it, uh, which is silence is contributing. It makes you complicit. But I, I as somebody who I, I towed the line, Marco, for many years, uh, I voted Democrat. I was a good boy. I, I considered myself, I went to a very progressive summer camp. I married, I was in an interracial marriage, you know, uh, I have a child from that marriage. But I, what I find every time I think I've gotten, <laughs> you know, uh, to the point where I, I, I guess I'm now, you know, proud of who I am. I, I, I realize I'm still so far from that point, you know, and, and, and likely is I will never get to that point because I'm a white person and um, I'm, not, it's, I'm not trying to be an apologist, but I, I'm trying to say the opposite in a way. To realize this stuff, it's liberating, you know, it's, a libera it's liberating because, um, you, you, there, you, it's, 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 uh, this is horrible for everybody, whether or not you realize it or recognize it or not. It's just more horrible for your, for black people because they're dealing with this night and day. You know, it's as honest as I can be about it. My, yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I, I agree with you that to, I mean, I could, well, I shouldn't say I agree, I agree with the, the last understanding that this is horrible and that's for the entire society, right? So if, if white people want to live with their privilege, uh, they are burdened by that. If white people mm. are not capable of, of being awoke uh, and seeing oppression in its many manifestations, then they are, you know, they are damning themselves. It's unhealthy ultimately, right? It's a far healthier society to, to release to let things out and then to to cope and process. So I I, I do uh, uh, agree with that. Is it liberating? I think that that's something that white people or non-black people are coming to terms with. And I suppose that liberation may be arrived be arrived at when and if somebody white reflects on their own positionality and reflects on how to be accountable. I'm in my mid fifties though, so I've been, I've had time to think about things, and I've had time to talk to people, and I've had time to make a lot of mistakes or live silently for a long time. But how, how as a teacher, is this part of the way you teach? Uh, also, like uh, you're there to teach film, you're, you're doing film production and film. I teach film production, right? Um, and as a documentary you know, filmmaker. Uh, I teach both documentary and fiction production. Okay. I did not teach in the spring, and so uh, uh, in some measure, I... Was that a coincidence? It just was a coincidence. Uh, the way the Northwestern works, it's on a quarter system, okay. three quarters, and uh, I taught my teaching load in the fall and the winter. Okay. In, wishing to have the spring to do my creative work, spring, summer, as a kind of, you know, six-month window. Sure. Uh, so I, I do I do regret and I, that I wasn't teaching as hard as the remote teaching was. I think that that's a space 
where I could have engaged students in conversation about society, the world, et cetera, introducing the pandemic, its impact on various communities, choices being made, and then certainly uh, the protests. I, I'm in touch with a few students. I have, I don't have, there are students that I have taught who I'm their advisor, who have been part of protests in Chicago, who have been beaten, who have had tear gas um, shot at them. I've only engaged them, you know, a little bit, but not in the intense kind of uh, right. laboratory that is called the classroom. So, but even in the past, say um, students are very, you know, especially at that time uh, of their lives, I find that um, you know they're they become more politicized by the nature of the school and of being around other students. I don't know how deeply that is for individuals i guess it spans like anything else it's uh you know different for everybody but um how is that as a teacher uh you know one of the facets of my uh syllabus if you will for documentary production is to introduce and challenge the students to think about uh three interrelated ideas. One is whose story is it and who gets to tell it? Because we're at a moment in time where there's certainly righteous resentment that stories about my, my community, my identity, is being told by those who are not part of that community. Why are funders privileging others to tell my story? So that's something I get them to think about. Whose story is it? I get them to talk about positionality, to recognize their position as filmmakers or the graduate students, film students, graduate students, and that position relative to the people they're making films about, the power um, that one wields being behind the camera. When I talk to them about ethics, the whole, you know, in which ethics, as we know, is not law, it's not codified, it's thought about and then practiced by each individual. So I, I'm, um, that is very much part of my, my process of teaching. And I guess I could tell you this, I know that I've done it well when, and I, this, you know, this past year, taught documentary in the fall, this spring, I, I was a guest in one of my colleagues' classes. Uh, he was using my online uh, game, The Migrant Trail. He teaches interactive media to it. And in the course of conversation, one of the students challenged or questioned me about, uh, did I get permission from the people in the, in, in the game, how I constructed the game? What did I do with the profits? So I knew that I had exceeded because of things that I had taught in the fall, she was calling me on. So I, you know. Is that um, right? Yeah, so it's like, and, and no. keep, don't, don't just stop with me, but you know, right. that's, what, that's the requirement. So that's very much about my practice. I, I, I wanna offer a different anecdote. Uh, the student I was teaching, and this is in Qatar, so it's a different population. The United States is not the center of their universe. This student uh, who I'm speaking to today is Pakistani. Uh, 
and he reflected on an assignment I gave in a, in a fiction directing class. It must be four years ago now, three years ago, where I wanted them to analyze a couple of scenes. I gave them a choice either from Black Swan or Fruitvale Station. Okay. And all the students did Black Swan. And that's because Black Swan had come out. They had all seen it. They hadn't heard of Fruitvale Station. I got to the class and I said, what? None of you looked at this film? You don't right. know who Oscar Grant is? And then I made them all have to watch it. And afterwards, in the next class, they came in and they were like, Professor, we didn't know. So you know, their bubble was such that they didn't know. Now, that's four years ago. I think the world has changed uh, radically. But that's just a different example where, so that's a community where I'm, I'm conscious of not imposing the construct of American right. injustice. But I was use, using, it, using a scene from the film, principally for directing purposes. And when I realized that they didn't know anything about it, then I made sure that they had to know something about it so they could contextualize that in, in relationship to their own worlds. So those are different examples. Yeah, those are pretty great examples. That's like, a, um, so do you, uh, was it the case that in Cutter that, that they just didn't have access to uh, Fruitvale Station or? Uh, uh, they hadn't heard, I mean, yeah, like, you just know, marketing. Yeah, I think it's marketing and, and we, we know that pretty well, or at least I know that is that films that feature black stories or black people short of uh, Black Panther or Will Smith and something shoot them up is perceived as not having the ability to, to cross over into the global market. Right. So, so that's, I think was part of it. And then just, you know, Black Swan, well marketed, what's his name, you know, People know, you know, what's his name? Uh, uh, director of Fruitvale Station was his first film, right? So nobody, I mean, if everybody knows him now because of Black Panther. Right. But, yeah. you, know, you know what I'm saying? You know, so anyway, it, it, it's hard to say. Those students were very uh, culturally aware. They were watching Game of Thrones. They, they were, they, they accessed media, but they didn't know right. about this. Sure. Well, it's an independent film, too. And, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and I'm sure, like, it sounded like they were grateful for that being made aware they, of it again. It's, I think they were in the end. I mean, and, you know, it's good to, I mean, that's what the classroom has been for me, is it's a place to learn about others, engage what is happening, and be challenged and to challenge. Mm. So how is the fall looking for for? for you and um, are you going to be teaching in that first quarter? I'm supposed to teach the first quarter. I'm supposed to teach uh, our incoming MFA uh, documentary class. The first, it's a two year program. We've accepted 12 students okay. from China in the fall. And we're now discussing the, how, how education will be. I think the university is thinking about uh, in present, you know, on-campus learning, and I would like to teach, uh, because it's a cohort, it's 12 students, diverse. Right. I, I, the goal is to create cohort, and, and cohort thinking cohesion or, or learning from each other that I'm not sure is as easily achieved remotely. But there are four students from China. Uh, our president policy may not allow students from China to 
to come. There's a student from Great Britain. We've got a quarantine, right. you know, uh, yeah. preventing, you know, so, and there could be any U.S.-based student who might say, I don't want to be there. And if, in which right. case, then I'll teach it remotely. Sure. So it's definitely a hybrid. Not yet. I'm trying to make okay. it in person. So even the Chinese students? Well, if they can come, if everybody right. can come, we'll do it in person. If there's Chinese students, if one student can't or doesn't want to do in person, then I'll do it all remotely because I think it's not fair. Really? To have, yeah, it's not fair to have 10 who can be in person and two who can't. You're not creating community. So I, I'll then work on, and I'm not taught remotely, but I'll work on creating community uh, remotely. I'm thinking about different ideas of how to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And then part of that thinking and decision making, though, is also incorporating what the uh, industry prescribes, I suppose, as well as the university. So. Uh, and our own articulation of best practices. I mean, it's an right. MFA program. The principal, six principal professors are all practicing documentarians. We're engaged in all the various webinars and, and thinking about that. But ultimately, yes, we'll look to the end, you know, look to a industry aspect. Right. And then the university has to make their decisions about that. So, yes. See the uh, webinars you mentioned, are the, those, those are like industry professionals as well yeah. as other faculties from other schools that are you kind I have, of. I haven't participated in webinars with other faculty, although there is a robust Facebook group of film professors that I check okay. in on, but you know, it's industry, Doc NYC, uh, right. Sundance, um, sure. you know, yeah. you know they, 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 everybody, you know, in, in the, in the pandemic was immediately, uh, trying to figure out a way to create community and have discussions. So there were discussions on, you know, ethics and, uh, best practices and, uh, how do you film at this stage? What are the, tools and approaches, filming Zoom, all sorts of things. So there's a lot of material out there that I got to kind of think about how it applies. Very good. Well, I mean, I have to mention that I was first introduced to you with The Two Towns of Jasper some years ago. Remains one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Thank uh, you. Just the, the structure you and Whitney uh, used to tell the story and how you went about it is uh you know it's mind-blowing it's it was and very effective i thought it was incredibly effective you have a whole meta thing going on while you're filming this story going back to jasper and telling this their story in the history of the town the two towns uh, i appreciate that i i think that it's uh you know it still holds up despite being four by three and shot on you know initially i guess maybe even some high eight before we got to really tv uh but it holds up and i think because are we surprised even, so Bird was murdered in, in 1998, so 20 years later, the nation has not really changed. Yes, there's been change, but the racial dynamics are, are still as fissured as they were then, even when we see images of black and white youth, yeah. and Latino and Asian youth protesting together, they're still, you know, separations, and we, we reflect on the, the topics differently. I've always said that. I mean, the easiest way to make it explicit for some, for a widest audience is talking about feminine hygiene. 
women can talk about their period and putting in a tampon and that sort of thing to each other in a way that is shared. And with, if they have to tell that to a, a man, it's got to be explained. It's not the same experience. And so race is that when we get really get down to it, black people don't have to explain, you know, and I said this to my student, I'm driving, a police car pulls up behind me, both hands are now on the steering wheel. I pull over. A black person could then, you know, we, you know, they can continue the, the narrative and white people don't have that reality with the cops. So shared experience versus explained experience. Mm. Yeah, as a, I've been able to walk around Manhattan and if I have to use a bath, just walk into any hotel, uh, I don't have to worry about it. Or I can walk into any restaurant. Um, um, I'm aware of that. The one film I want to, to ask you about, since I knew I was going to have you and I wanted to see it, was a much more personal story for you, which was, although, again, it absolutely has a broader context, and that is your, the film you did about uh, meeting your father. In Search of Our Fathers. In Search of Our Fathers. You know, I have not seen it, and um, I've been wanting to for, for I'll, I'll send you a link. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, at once... Uh, very specific, you could say, and therefore personal, it is my family. But what I learned with that movie, uh, shoo, 1991, I guess, okay. and, and uh, touring it at that point, you know, and touring it all over the world. So it debuted at Sundance and it was at Berlin and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And what I learned is that here is a, a very... Uh, in some ways clumsily made, it was first film, uh, product, jump cuts, all sorts of things that I, you know, I, nobody ever taught me. You know. Godardian, it's not jump cuts. It's not a mistake. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I very much was in, informed or influenced by Godard. Oh. And, and, but nonetheless, the, at its core, the film is about the family. And you can't go anywhere in the world and not be able to have a conversation with people about the notion of family, period. I mean, it's like, to me, there are three things that are universal conversation. Sports, I mean, if you like sports and you land in, if you know football, European football or world football, and you land in any country in the world, you can find somebody to talk about football. Music, broadly speaking, and family. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that we we have families that are exactly the same. It doesn't no, mean we, right. but family. We're, all, we're all children of somebody. Exactly. We all have a family. So that's what I learned with that film is that it, even though it was about me, this black family in the United States and Philadelphia and so forth, I showed it everywhere in the world, Brazil, Germany, Austria, South right. Africa, Japan. I mean, it just you, you name it and everybody got it. Wow. Yeah, I'll remind you to send me that link. And you mentioned, lastly, you mentioned that you had take, you had the spring quarter off and uh, you were working on personal, or with the hopes of working on personal uh, work, or your own work, I should say. Were you able to get something under the wire before things locked down, or you have something that you're currently... I'm in post-production on a documentary that is 
working title is called Murders That Matter. Mm-hmm. And I began researching this in 2014. And it has an interesting relationship to where we are today. My thesis was there are all these murders within the African-American community that are not by police murdering black people. And while you know the names of A, B, C, D, E, and F, do you know, you know, M, N, O, P, the black people who were killed sadly and tragically by other black people within black communities? And so that was, so that's why I called it Murders That Matter. These murders matter as much as the others, but they never get the same kind of attention. And so it wanted to be a a kind of wider lens on this topic. And it was set in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. because I had uh, a couple of reasons. Philadelphia had a very high murder rate, unsolved murder rate in the black community. And I had two family members murdered in Philadelphia. So I had a kind of personal connection to the story. The film became about a woman, a mother, an African-American Muslim mother, named Movita Johnson Harrell, who has lived a life of loss, the murders of different family members, um, a father, a brother, a cousin, and a son. And I met her soon after her youngest son was murdered. And it's really about the traumatic impact of, of, of these losses and her effort to make a difference. And one of her slogans is, you know, uh, I left Philadelphia to save my sons. I've returned to Philadelphia to save all the sons on both sides of the gun. So that's in post-production. And I'm fortunate I received a Sundance Documentary Fund grant that will get me three or four weeks with my editor. And I'm still trying to raise the last money. And I'm also in development uh, of, of a project that I hope happens with a production entity that's set in Chicago. And I w- I'm being careful right now because the, nothing has been signed, even though I've been researching for the last month. It's, it really kind of looks at, uh, it's, an, it's informed by a book called Transaction Man, Transaction Man by Nicholas Lemon. That looks at, that's a, a, a book of the, historical nonfiction about the history of, of, of the economy and how it's moved from one type of economic framework to another to another. And he had located the, the personal story or the, the local story in a community in Chicago called Chicago Lawn. Chicago, and, uh, Chicago Lawn, L-A-W-N. Okay. It has an interesting history, just as a side note, all white. This is the neighborhood where King came to march and uh, he was attacked and people threw bottles and rocks. Oh, yeah. at him. So he I've been the one where he was a really actually, a, uh, he, he expressed, I think, on the march to, to a reporter that he was actually afraid for his safety. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's the neighborhood. Now it's evolved since that time in the early mid 60s, I should say. It's gone from white working class to African-American and now loosely African-American, Latinx uh, mixture. And I've been down there trying to understand the, the community and, and certainly the impact of, of the pandemic and 
now the, the racial uh, attention. So that's what I'm working on. Um, that, uh, I, I just remembered that moment all of a sudden, it came back to me so vividly because I remember that scene because he was, he's, it was a case where he was shook, King was just really shaken up and angry uh, where he said, I think he was explaining how he, only in the North, that Effectively he's constantly right. protesting, he's never, in the South, and he's never felt like that in level of, I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly, but. Well, that certainly fed into, and I'll at best be able to paraphrase, that that greater uh, worry or fear from the northern liberal than the southern racist, because at least with the southern racist, you know. he, exactly, he knew exactly where he stood, and the northern liberal might at once seem like, you know, they're in solidarity with you. This is certainly in the 60s, but they're not inviting you over to their house for Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you. Uh, I those sound like great projects. I, I hope you can use some of the time that you're yeah this summer moving that. Well, one will be done hopefully by the end of the calendar year, the beginning of the the new year. In a lot of ways, I'm you know as you're co cognizant of, it's not really clear you know what the market or world is for finished films. I know. Right. Uh, festivals, what does that mean? So that, you know, I'm not racing to, uh, I mean, I, I want to finish it, but it's not like, oh, I got to get it ready for Sundance or Berlin or whatever. And the other will start, I'll start filming July, August, September. You know, I'm still doing some research. Wow. Okay. Very good. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for, uh, for making the time. And again, I, I apologize for being a little late. That's all right. I mean, I, I, I didn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either, but, you know. Now, even though the city has opened up a little bit, but I'm not, you know, rushing out necessarily. So. All right. Uh, so I, uh, what are you doing with this? You're going to create something? You're going to let me know? You're going to send uh, it to me? The pod, uh, sure, sure. The podcast, you know, I just, I, I post uh, typically once a week, but I, I, um, I'm going to, I might do a little frequently, more frequently, for a couple of weeks just because I kind of fell behind and I took a like a week or two where I wasn't which I never do but I just felt um like I wasn't putting up the podcast that I would had a problem with last week for instance but but promoting it I felt a little self-conscious promoting that under the context you know where everybody else is so many other people are kind of going dark and then I felt well I don't have to, maybe I just posted not promote it but then I'm thinking what if I had you on the show and then I don't I don't promote that. It's not fair to the guests. So I thought, oh, just wait a week or so till it feels, you know, a little bit. So um, having said that, uh, I guess uh, I'm catching up and I'll be posting this pretty, I guess pretty soon. You know, so please, that conversation. Please I mean, I'm well, not a, I'll definitely. I'm not a big social media person, so you can't, I, I promise no, I'll send you. an email. I promise, I mean, you'll send it to me. I promise you I may not say anything to anybody on social media. Because, no, don't worry about it. Yeah. But I'd love to listen to it. Yeah, no, it'll be great. I, it, I, I'm very um, pleased with the, the conversation. I hope you are. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was nice to finally have an, a, a kind of a nuanced conversation with you. I've only met you a couple of times over the years. I remember one time on the subway, it didn't really have much opportunity yeah. for conversation. But um, I was saying, I'm pretty sure it's Marco sitting over there. Yeah, I, you're you're right. And, and, and now we, we would have an even more difficult time having uh, 
conversation on the subway at least for another bunch of months. Right? I mean, yeah. do you want to be on the subway and are you going to wear a mask on the subway? Yeah, I, I don't even, you know, um, the big, this big secret is I'm actually moving out of the city for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm going upstate for, for, my son is in Los Angeles with his mother. Uh, I, I, you know, had a family lost this summer or spring rather. And um, I just, I, I realized I, I've just, I got to get out of the city. I don't want to go through another one of these here. Um, you know, so we'll see uh, what the long-term plan is, but uh, it's not that far away, you know. Well, I wish you, wish you the best and I completely you. understand, you know, be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. All right man. Have a good, uh, I guess, afternoon. Thank you. You as well. All righty. Take care. Yeah. Bye, Adam. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back next week. I, we may only get one episode in next week because of the move that I mentioned at the top of the show. But we have so many wonderful episodes coming up, so I'm, I'm just urging you to keep tuning in. This has been... Uh, a, I'm, I'm so excited about the next bunch of episodes. We'll be f- uh, focusing on a new documentary about Congressman John Lewis called John Lewis Good Trouble. We're going to bring on the director who is going to be making her second appearance, Dawn Porter. And then we're also bringing on Erica Alexander, who was working behind the scenes on this documentary in terms of uh, working on the development side of this film. We'll be back to talk to Erica and to Dawn. And we'll also be bringing on the Scottish filmmaker, Mark Cousins, as well as the uh, actor, Josh, Joshua Burge, the singer-songwriter, Josh Rouse, and the team behind a documentary about Olympia Dukakis, Harry Mavro-McCallis, and his producer, Anthula Katsimatidis. And I'm, I'm excited to bring them both on. And uh, that's just skimming the icing there, folks. We have a lot more coming up over the next uh, few weeks. So keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening. This is your host, Adam Shartoff. The name of the show is Film Wax Radio. Please take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time. Broken strings, broken threads, broken springs.